don't know what they have to say. It makes no difference anyway. Whatever it is, I'm against it. No matter what it is or who commenced it, I'm against it. Your proposition may be good, but let's have one thing understood. Whatever it is, I'm against it. And even when you've changed it or condensed it, I'm against it. I'm opposed to it. On general principles, I'm opposed to it. Okay. Here's how I got into it first. It was back in 2001. I started wrestling with this simply because um, I was. I, we, it was a big. It was the big, and you may not may or not may not remember this, but it was the big time for open theism back in 1996 <laughs> through about 2001, where it was kind of squashed within evangelicalism. But it's still. I'm definitely still around. But uh, I was at the I was at the ETS conference where it was about that, and I remember uh, Clark Pinnock and many of the others, and one of their main arguments were, uh, we believe in sola scriptura and the Bible doesn't teach what you're saying about God. That doesn't teach about his simplicity, meaning he's not composed of parts, either matter, material parts, or, or spatial parts, or, or time parts, any type of parts. Uh, we believe in the simplicity of God. We believe in the uh, eternality of God, not meaning that he exists forever within time, but that he exists above time. That's a traditional view, which I believe as well, and I'm, I'm very committed to. Um, and we also believe in other things such as his immutability. Now, the Bible does talk about the immutability, but I'm talking now about the simplicity. And underneath that umbrella of simplicity to do with his eternality. And their basic argument was, God exists in time. And I, we might say, why, why, why do you think he exists in time? And they say, well, because everywhere in Scripture we see him, he is in time. And there's nowhere that presents this above time view. Even if you go to the passages, you know, that say a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day, they would push back and say, no, that's not talking about him being outside of time. It's just talking about his perspective on time, which I think is probably true. It's not talking about him being outside of time. So how do we get this view that God is outside of time? Well, we get it not scripturally, but we get it philosophically. And we get it out of a necessity of being. If things are being, if things are existing, if time and space exist, and then God uh, has to create this, if he's not, he's not the creator. If he has to create it, he can't create it out of stuff that's pre-existing along with him. You know, he grabs time from over here, space from over here, and some matter from over here, and mixes them together because they've always been with them. Or, or the time itself is over him. He's always existed in time, and you know, he's got, he's, you know, he, he's probably got a watch or something that he's looking at and trying to figure out when, when, when this is going to hurry up and end. You know, one of the, our biggest constraints is time. One of the biggest things we go through every single day is trying to. Uh, get things within the time that we have allotted and then we don't have enough time in life, that kind of stuff. What if God is still is the same? He's kind of caught up in this whole time scheme as us, you know, and he's, he can't do anything about it. He can't rise above time or, or anything. He, he's not, he doesn't exist above time. He exists within the, the tyranny of time. Uh, I call it at this point. If he exists within the tyranny of time, then time in some sense is authoritative over him. You know, I mean, it has to be. He has to abide by its rules. Uh, he didn't create it. He just goes by its rules. I don't know what happened. I mean, I've just, I've always been here, but this 
this succession of moments has always been here too. And the only way we can make a solid case that God is outside of time is philosophically. It's out of necessity. It's out of logical necessity that we build that. So our rationale tells us that. Oh, and I even forgot about rationale. I can't believe that. That is, that's just crazy. But the, our rationale, our reasoning capacity, which we have to have before we even approach Scripture. We, we can't even read Scripture without reason. We have to have a subject-verb-object relationship and know all these different things. We've got to know language and, and stuff. There's all these prerequisites that go into us even beginning to read Scripture, but reason is one of those. But if we use our reason, we come to the conclusion that if God has created everything, and if time goes on forever with him, then then we, we've got the old, uh, the, the old Kalam argument, which says he would, would have never gotten to this point, because we would still be going, if time goes back eternity for God, then he could never cross eternity to get to the present because he's always got eternity to get to the present. There's no way in which he could ever cross a succession of events, moments, anything. I don't care whether you squeeze time down or stretch it out. It's a succession of events that we're talking about. And time itself, I believe, is not a creation. I don't think it's a substance. And he said, all right, now let's create time. I think he just created matter and space and movement, and time is simply a measurement of movement. So that's the only definition of time I have, is time is a measurement of movement. But he's above movement. He's above, him in himself, in his, in his ontological being, in his ontos, in his stuff, in his, in his uh, uh, the, the uh, nature that he is, is always, you know, if you want to say, show me the stuff of God, you know, I got your head and, and uh, shoulders and legs and arms and in space and, you know, take a, be able to take a picture of it. He's outside of, he doesn't exist in relationship, time, space, or matter. He's none of those things because he had to create them all. And he didn't create them out of himself because we're not pantheists or pantheists. So I believe that that, the place where we have to go to and, and are pure, totally justified in going to is creation. I think it's authoritative, just as authoritative as the scripture. Matter of fact, scripture doesn't even make an argument for the existence of God. If scripture doesn't make an argument for the existence of God, why is it doing it? Like R.C. Sproul says, it's like bringing steel to Pittsburgh. I don't know if you guys do steel still there, because you probably don't bit. do much steel, do you? Not, not, not too a much, but bit. a little bit, yeah. But he says it's like bringing steel to Pittsburgh. It's unnecessary. It's redundant, even if the Bible spoke about that, yeah. because we already have the preconceptions based upon philosophical or natural theology. And those conclusions are just as solid as our scriptural conclusions we come to. Yeah, and that's a very flowery understanding of our ability and sin only affecting certain aspects of our life and not everything uh, in in the aspects of our life and universe. Um, but yeah, I remember the whole open theism thing, and, and it seems to have died out a lot. Molinism is the new thing. That's that's the new yeah. like hip thing these yeah. days. That we, we definitely better than open theism. Yeah, well, I always say that the the only people who believe in Molinism are those who believe that maybe in an alternate universe they actually you know. We're right about it. Um, yeah. But I hate saying that because I know William Lane Craig is a moralist, and I hate I hate disagreeing with, with him on stuff because I feel like I'm smart enough to get it. Um, 
but uh, you know, to, to kind of work backwards from what you just uh, what you just said, uh, we're starting from a false premise with time, with our understanding of time. Um, what if our relationship to time and space has been affected by the fall to the point where we actually think that time and space behaves this way when it does not? It's our relationship to it. It's no big deal as long as time is a measurement of movement because well, movement always uh, happen. But that's how we're perceiving it. But that might not be it. Um, well, how can time be a stuff in and of itself? Well, I'm not saying it's it's a stuff in and of itself. What I'm saying is that our understanding of the way that time functions, and the way that space functions, and the way that matter functions is one dimensional it's inappropriate because of the fall this is why with with the apocalypse and apocalyptic literature and stuff it's things that are there that's being revealed there's there's another uh dimension another aspect to this uh tom torrance gets in this uh, real well in his um his, his two volumes but i think in incarnation he really dives into our relationship to time through homartiology and and the effect that it can have on our perception of it so even from the starting point of the assumption of something as static as time and its movement and successions, perhaps we're starting from a position that we don't really understand. So now we're coming to false assumptions with it. Not saying I disagree with you. But this is why I qualified it and said uh, it can be dynamic. Your your understanding of time can be dynamic. So set that aside and just say the succession of movements or or set set that aside and say time is a measurement of movements. Therefore, we're talking about movement here. And God is not involved in movement. That's what I would put. Physical movement. Well, he doesn't have I mean, space that he moves in. He doesn't pace back and forth. There's no heaven. I mean, uh, he, you have no, all but, kinds but as, of... But as theist, he transcends time and space. So we do. We would say that there there is a, a, a type of control and relationship that he has to oh, it sure. as he, as he yeah. has to everything. Yeah. But, but my continued work Definitely. backwards that's, from that's this... A, that's the thing about us, and let me make this clear. That's okay. the thing about traditional Christianity is that cr- traditional Christianity holds both two doctrines which which seem like they can't exist together. And as a matter of fact, C.S. Lewis called this the biggest mystery. But we believe in a God that is both transcendent, above mm-hmm. time, beyond time, holy, you know, above time, space, matter, all that kind of stuff, and then one that's imminent as well, uh, daily. He's involved. He he is there for us. He is truly feeling with us. He is truly moving with us in so many ways. And to make it all kind of make your head spin all the more, Jesus the second person of the Trinity becomes incarnate forever. The Holy Spirit becomes um, representative, or no, representative is not a strong enough term. I mean, I think he becomes, uh, in some ways, and I don't want to get anybody to get me wrong on this, but in some ways incarnate in a dove, you know, in, in tongues of fire, in all kinds of things which you see uh, here here on the earth. And so well, I believe that God not alone— Not that, but in, uh, in Exodus 19 and 20— uh, you know, the Holy Spirit oh, yeah. being there yeah. in in the the, uh, the glory on Mount Sinai in um, Numbers um, eleven, where the Spirit of God is uh, put on the on the seventy because Moses is like I can't handle it. So you do see that that um, I mean, if we want to use the word infusion, I know that might be a dirty word to some people, but the infusion of the Spirit into people. 
and into places yeah. and into things. Very much dynamic like that. But I, I, I didn't want to lose my, my, my train of response here, like that, that I was getting at because all I'm, right, I'm sorry, moving. Sorry. That's all right. I'm just moving back in, in these premises here that, um, you know, I started with, you know, our, our, if our starting point of time is faulty because of our relationship f- through sin is, is a faulty understanding of time and space, then you're, you're looking at an authority that needs to be put in place outside of the Bible to help us rightly interpret the Bible so that we get the right interpretation because the right interpretation is in fact the word of God. So if the right interpretation is the word of God, then we necessarily need something outside of the Bible that has the quality of infallibility that then helps us to know that what we are uh, exegeting from scripture is correct. Oh, hey, I didn't see you there. I am Samson Kovach. I'm the co-host of Divergent Theology and the host of uh, The Theology Pit. Here to take a moment of your time to, you know, shamelessly plug some of our stuff that we do. Now, I know you've been asking yourself while you're watching these episodes of Divergent Theology, hey, how can I become a Divergent Theologian? Well, that's a great question. First thing you have to do Well, you have to know why you believe what you believe. And the reason for that is because you have to know what's in the realm of, let's say, non-heresy and the realm of heresy. You have to know how far you can go and diverge in each direction and still remain an Orthodox Christian. What's that? (laughs) Yes, the best way to go about doing that, in my opinion, is to go to crudohouse.org. Now, what I would recommend is you start off with the discipleship program. Discipleship program is a great way to get an introduction into, you know, what you believe as a Christian. It's broken down into uh, 10 sessions here. Michael's done a good job with this. Uh, Looking at the Bible, mankind, the Trinity, Jesus, faith, like um, living with God, those sort of things. Um, It's in, you know, two separate sections, but this is if you really are new to the faith or kind of you're thinking of a way hey how in my church can i teach something this is a great uh great ministry tool but you're saying samson look i'm already a christian i've been a christian a while i want to go deeper oh okay we have the theology program here i would say you start off with your introduction to theology you can all find all of this stuff credohouse.org and uh go through the six course program and you'll know a little bit more about why you believe what you believe. Now, as a divergent theologian, and I've, you know, taught and worked with uh, Credo House, even back when it was called Reclaiming the Mind, um, on my podcast, you notice The Theology Pit, where you can go to theologypit.com, you can get great things like mugs and shirts. I have some new shirts that I've made up, says I can do all things through scripture taken out of context. Support the ministry that way you'll notice that I diverge a little bit more. I am neither a Calvinist nor am I an Arminian. I'm free to do that. Uh, There are other things out there, and we'll get into that a little bit more. But that's where you can be a divergent theologian. So check out the sites, check out the, the books and all the wonderful resources that we have at both of these sites and the podcasts. Don't forget Theology Unplugged, one of the biggest podcasts, theological podcasts on Apple. Another nice little tip when you're learning Greek, use cards. Use your Greek cards as bookmarks. It's great. 
Apocrinomai. Hey, <laughs> answer indeed. Oh, Michael, what are you thinking? And that's got to be reason. I mean, this is where but, I come but, in and say reason I'm, itself, again, I'm saying that. When, when used properly, is infallible as well. But can we do that because of sin? Can we interpret the Bible perfectly because of sin? I don't think so. Okay, then we don't have anything authoritative unless we qualify what it is we're talking well, about we here. we do, but, but what you're saying is that the Bible's not the infallible thing. The interpretation is the infallible thing. I'm saying we have to get the interpretation right in order for uh, it to be infallible. In other words, all I'm doing is comparing a yeah. wrong interpretation to the right interpretation. If it's the wrong interpretation, just because it's the Bible doesn't make it infallible. Therefore, we have to have the right interpretation of that. And I'd say the same thing through creation. We'd have to have the right interpretation. And you can get a wrong interpretation of creation. I mean, you can look at creation and and maybe look at uh, some of the difficulties in creation and, and natural life. Life here on the earth and say, well, I see, I see tornadoes. I see people's death. I see death and all that. So I think God loves, and I see suffering. So I think God loves suffering and hunger, you know, and no, you're, you're getting it wrong. Yeah, but, it, but uh, I mean, but you're not advocating for perfect interpretation. I mean, you could be in a general ballpark, right? With interpretation, with, 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 with getting, with, with drawing something out of scripture. Okay. Oh, like, sure. I mean, okay. you're just getting, just getting the message yeah. right. As, as someone once said to me, like, you know, e even if something's a little crooked, it can still be right in the same way that, you know, uh, a smile is crooked, but it can make stuff right. Sure. Okay. And so, so sure, that's what I'm getting it, it, it at. So still if, be basically right at that. Yeah. Yeah. So if we're looking at, uh, you know, cause what I do, cause what I don't want to do, and, and maybe I do, maybe we do want to kind of go down this path, but I don't want to do a, basically the Protestant version of the Roman Catholic two tier system, you know, with, well, we have a, an, a collection of books in our Bible that we know is the right collection because a, a magisterial authority has declared it. And so what I yeah. don't want to do is say, well, on the other side, we have this type of reason, authority, right interpretation, proper interpretation that then tells us what the what the word of God actually is and means. So therefore, it's not the word of God itself. It's the word of God with this interpretation. Those two things paired together, which would yeah. not be sola scriptura at all. Yeah, that sure. Would not be I mean, this is scripture alone. So, well, uh, you're, you're you're right. Whatever you say. I mean, this you know, the scripture correctly translate the correct version. Everything else that is uh, in and of itself that's that is inspired. I mean, you can't take that away from it. it has a quality of being inspired by definition. Now, what I'm saying is that the whenever we talk in it and we're saying it's the infallible word, and we we're kind of saying I believe the infallible. I say, well, what do you believe about the infallible word? And let me see if what you believe is truly representative of the infallible word, because we have to judge it based upon people's understanding of it. It's no good if it's just sitting up on a mantle and just say, we'll put a glory around it and say, that's the infallible word. It is be good because we read it and we, we come to conclusions about God. Now, that's the thing that we're we're having but a those, little bit of difficulty. But those conclusions that we come to then have to be tested by others who have come to their conclusions also. And it's almost like if we can get a consensus of what the conclusion is, 
as it's going out and it's received. I mean, this is very Carl Bart type stuff. Consensus freedom. Yeah, the consensus of faith. Yeah, yeah. It, it's not the the word of God is unless it is it is preached and received, then it is the infallible word of God. <laughs> no, I don't know if I go Bart right, on well, that one. I, yeah. I mean, you're almost getting there. You're almost getting no, there. I, I'm not. I'm not. I'm just saying, <laughs> in and of itself, it is. And uh, the the inspiration happened. This is talking about where does inspiration lie, and we're talking about inspiration lies in the uh, the the between God and the messenger, and and his writing down those three elements: his mm -hmm. the God giving to the mind of the messenger, and the messenger giving it to his pen. I think that's where inspiration lies. Now, whenever or we're at talking least about the right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> we might have third one. There. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but we have um, we have here we have the interpretation of it that is the preached word. Now that's not the only thing I'm saying is the infallible or is the word of God. The word of God exists alone by itself over here. But it's no good if we're getting a wrong interpretation. That's what I'm saying. Okay. Let, let, me, let me use one more verse here just to say that because I forgot to use this and it's important All right, about okay. God. And um, so give us another uh, one of your weird interpretations. No, no, this is a weird one. This is actually this is actually where you could say the Bible teaches that God is above time because it does say, "Whom alone God who alone possesses immortality and dwells in an unapproachable light, who no man has seen nor can see." Now I'm not saying that says all of what I've said here, but it really does back it up because there is a sense in which we will not be able to see God ever. But there's also a sense in which we will always see God. And this, Paul, whenever Paul says this, he's not saying, you know, in your own, your different state, you can't see God. God alone possesses immortality. And, and Paul is distinguishing God's immortality from his at that point, which I believe is his transcendence. Who alone possesses the transcendent immortality. And therefore, since he's transcendent, you cannot see him. But anyway, right. um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you've got these things. You've got reason, which you have to come to Scripture with, and you can't interpret Scripture without reason. And so it's a prerequisite. I mean, gosh, you got to learn the language. That's a prerequisite. You've got all kinds you of learning. You have never met an gotta... unreasonable person, have you? <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm just saying it's necessary in order to get to the right interpretation. I understand Scripture, you have to have reason. But reason, you have creation itself. You have uh, the internal conviction of the Holy Spirit. Uh, you have uh, our experiences that move. And we also have tradition. Tradition itself, you know, I believe uh, the Holy Spirit moves through the ages, and he does speak to people. Now, I'm not telling you which time he speaks or where he speaks or how he speaks, but I believe that the dwelling of the Holy Spirit is displayed within people. And whenever I look through the church and I see this in the church, and I think that this is this is the word of God, this is God's basically stamp mark or his his brand name. Whenever I look through all the two thousand years of church history and I see the mass majority of the church believing in certain, you know, twenty doctrines. But all the other ones, you know, they disagree about. But we're talking about the resurrection of Christ, the eternality of Christ, the, the Trinity. I mean, I could go through a big list. I see that as wow, you know, this this uh, this is uh, what they, the early church called this the regula fide, the rule of faith, the things that we've always believed. And I see that as the Holy Spirit coming through in the history of the church. Okay, so one one question I want to ask you, 
and I want to okay. pose to you on this. Um, and I actually might want to read from Mr. Wagner again here okay. because I think he's in his thesis calling you out on something. All right. All right. And, and what you've just said, and that is the concept of prima scriptura. Okay. And this is how he's he's defining. He says most that hold the prima scriptura position see competing sources of divine revelation between scripture, tradition, experience, and reason, and they usually hold that not none of these sources as a double negative there i guess uh that not none of these sources is always infallible without the need of clarification from one or more of the other three okay now let me let me clarify what it is that i uh, how i would define sola scriptura now that we've gone through all of this okay I still believe in Sola Scriptura, but now we're going to have to really think through each and every word. Mm -hmm. I believe that the Scripture is our final authority mm -hmm. in all matters of faith and practice. Now, I limit that there, you see. Uh, whenever, it, whenever it speaks on something, you know, I'm limiting, I'm saying this is, this is talking about faith and practice. Now, I'm not saying that it's not a... A, it, it's fallible in its history, or it's fallible in its um, medical, you know, license degree that it has. I'm saying that it just is speaking about redemptive history, and and a basic rule book for for life. I mean, you got the Psalms, you got Proverbs. Those those aren't really redemptive history in the same way. I mean, unless you're, you unless your your view of Psalms, but uh, Proverbs. You mean you know, the proper just kinda, view? Kinda proper view. Book. That's okay. You can say it. There you go. There you go. But in, in our faith and practice, whenever it speaks to something, I believe there's a clarity with which the scripture speaks. I mean, if if I can get somebody to write down what it is that the stars are saying, then you would have what we have in scripture because there's a clarity there. There's an interpretation already there. And so the, the scripture itself is an interpretation. You know the old saying, Every interpretation requires an interpretation. Mm -hmm. I mean, it does. Yeah. It's, it's, we all have this line of interpretation to go through, but the closer it gets to you and the closer you, it gets to the relevance of your situation, the clearer it speaks. And so, whenever I'm talking about the scripture being a, a, a kind of like creation, but in a, a right interpretation, then it speaks in man's language. Mm -hmm. The stars don't speak in man's language. They just communicate something that we have to filter in through the process of reason and, and figure stuff out. And the scripture speaks about a lot of details that are personally dealing with salvific history that we would never know from the stars. And so whenever I look to the scriptures, I look to those as being sufficient, sufficient to, to create the man of God in such a way that he is full and complete in his practice, in his knowledge and understanding of salvation, in his knowledge and understanding of how to engage the world uh, as a Christian or as a God-fearer. Okay, so faith and practice then become the litmus test. Faith and practice become the qualifier. Okay, so the qualifier. So oh. if there is perhaps a doctrine that does not line up, then the argument could be made that the person who is claiming Sola Scriptura actually does not agree with Sola Scriptura if the faith and practice, the proper doctrine, does not line up appropriately. 
You're going to have to put that a different way. Okay. Um, let's say for argument's sake, and I'm just taking this, I don't know, out of my head here from Mr. Wagner's thesis, that <laughs> believer's baptism is the litmus test and how um, Zwingli and Luther did not truly believe in sola scriptura because they did not hold to believer's baptism. Hey, thanks for listening to Divergent Theology. You can visit our websites at credohouse.org or thetheologypit.com and make a donation. Support the ministry that way. Now, here's a quick look at next week's Divergent Theology. I mean, I, I think that what, what's good about this, you know, that we're getting into is we're, we're really getting into the subtleties here because I could say to anyone, I believe in sola scriptura and then define it as prima scriptura and nobody would yeah. question me on it. Nah, it's not that probably is closer to John Calvin than like the Calvinism. Um, but uh, come on over, come on over. It's, it's sunnier over. It's here. predestined for me not to.